Well, what a privilege it is. And, uh, and uh, you know, Jen and I, I just have to say, are excited about leading house group. We knew when we came we wanted to lead a house group. We just had to find a house first, <laughs> uh, which we did by God's grace. And so we're thankful now to be able to embark on this exciting journey. So on April 16th, 1963, you remember then, right? Martin Luther King wrote a letter from jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And in this letter, he addressed a local clergy in Birmingham. These clergy had criticized the direction he was headed and the civil rights movement. And he had hoped when he came into Birmingham that he'd have the support of the local pastors and clergy, but unfortunately he did not. Here are just a few of the words in that very powerful letter. And here's what he said. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Now, it's hard to think of a person more resolute in the face of opposition from just about every single side than MLK. Uh, He knew what he was to do. He knew what God had called him to do, and he presses on even to the bitter end. And there are times in our life where we know exactly what God wants us to do. He's made it clear through his word. He's made it clear through his spirit in our hearts. But it's incredibly hard to do that thing. Staying resolute in these moments when there's opposition from every side is a real test. And what we're going to see this morning is that if we cling to the gospel, it will make all the difference. So I want you to turn with me to Acts 21. So if you'll find Acts, which is the fifth uh, book in your New Testament there, find the big number 21, okay, 21. And we'll be reading some of the verses from Acts 21 and Acts 22. I wanna recap a little bit here. We've been following along as Paul wraps up his third missionary journey. And last week we saw him travel from Ephesus through Macedonia down to Corinth and then over to Troas and Miletus. And when we left Paul, he was on the beach of Miletus with the Ephesian elders. He was saying goodbyes, remember? He was preparing to sail on. And what came out loud and clear in our text last week was Paul's heart and his attitude toward those that he had discipled, to those that he loved and had ministered to. Paul's legacy was one of encouragement, scripture, and example. And now we pick up the journey in Acts 21. And you can see this journey on our map on the screen. And so if you look at that map, you're going to see that Paul and the team sailed away from Miletus and their sights were set for Jerusalem across the sea there. 
They hit several islands along the way, and then they board a ship in Patera, which was a, a bigger ship equipped to take them the long journey over the open sea to Tyre. Now, Luke is writing here, he's writing an eyewitness account. He, he even mentions that as we sailed, we saw to our left, he says, we saw Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. The way he's describing it, it's like an eyewitness. And he says, eventually they made it to Tyre. And in Tyre, they spend a week. From there, they will travel down to Jerusalem. And you can see that on our next map there, where they kind of, but they, basically they sail from Tyre to Akko, from Akko to Caesarea. They spend a little bit of time in Caesarea. And then they travel by land down to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice in Acts 21, one detail that Luke shares with us about Paul's stay in Tyre with the believers there in Tyre. So verse four, if you look at verse four in your text, just re read this uh, verse right here of Acts 21, verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of strange because last time in chapter 20, we saw that the Holy Spirit, it says, constrained Paul's spirit to go to Jerusalem. So the spirit has constrained and spoken clearly to Paul, you're to go to Jerusalem. And now the believers here are saying, it says, by the spirit, like, don't go there. At least they've been revealed to by the spirit something, and now they're saying, don't go. So probably what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit gave understanding to the believers that are here in this city, and they can see, they can see what's going to happen to Paul. They know there's going to be imprisonment. They know there's going to be suffering. And so because they love Paul, because they don't want bad things to happen to Paul, they say to Paul, don't go, right? They say, don't go because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us what's going to happen. And if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. So they mean well, really, they mean well, but they're actually opposing God's plan because God has clearly said, go to Jerusalem to Paul. And so even though well-meaning, they're opposing God's plan. Now, the same thing happens in Caesarea, and I wanna read that, verses seven through 14. There's this opposition that, that, that is uh, against Paul going to Jerusalem. So look with me here, verse seven through 14 of Acts 21. Now, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I got three daughters. Uh, none of them prophesied that I know, okay? Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, when we heard this, we, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Here we see Paul stay resolute, even in the midst of opposition. And that's the first thing that God has for us here this morning from the text. Resolute in the midst of of opposition. And sometimes opposition can even come from those that we love 
or that love us. It can even be well-meaning, but opposition can come, even from those that love us. Have you ever been here where you knew what God wanted you to do? It was clear to you, but those that loved you gave you pushback. I can think of times where I led some short-term trips, some short-term missions trips back in the day with students, and I'd have a student get really pumped and they're excited to go on this trip to fill in the blank, you know, maybe somebody, somewhere overseas, only to have the parent uh, put a kibosh on it and say, no, no, my kid's not going there. Uh, and it was hard to see like a kid catch this fire to want to follow what they believe God had for them. But, you know, the parents have the authority and they, they said no. And I, and I get it. Like my wife and I took our kids as babies and toddlers to these places. So I get the risk. I know. I understand as a parent. But it's sad sometimes to see somebody's excitement and then see it be stifled. And maybe you've been there before where you've had people that have stifled your excitement to follow what God had for you. Or maybe could we ever be guilty of this where we are unintentionally opposing the plan of God. God has something for someone and we're saying, no, I don't think you should do that. Maybe, I don't know. Do Christian friends ever discourage you from, do, from doing what God wants you to do? Perhaps without even realizing it. What do you do if this is something you face? Is God calling you to remain resolute this morning, even in the midst of some loving opposition that you're experiencing? Here's Paul's response to the loving opposition, verse 13 and 14. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I like that. Let the will of the Lord be done. Paul can't be persuaded. So the team heads to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea accompany them. And then they get to Jerusalem. If you read through the chapter, you'll see. They get to Jerusalem, and they meet with James. And in, in Jerusalem, they meet with Christ followers. And what happens is James and the, and the disciples there, they, they, they share what God has been doing. They kind of swap stories, right? James and the leaders say, here's what God's been doing in Jerusalem. God has been building his church. Thousands of people have come to know Christ. And Paul gets to share his stories Here's what's been happening out there as we sail around. Here are all the people that have come to know Jesus. And this is a beautiful time where they just share what God is doing. And it's a testament to what Jesus promised his disciples, right? When he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what God is doing in Jerusalem and all over the place. After they talk and they share stories and just kind of praise God for his goodness, they decide to take some intentional steps to remove some stumbling blocks for the gospel. You can read this text later to see. Apparently, there was still some people who were skeptical of Paul as an apostle. And so they decide to kind of be above reproach. And Paul's going to go to the temple. He's going to make sacrifices. He's going to purify himself because apparently there's still more opposition to Paul. So Paul does this. He goes to the temple. He's doing what he believes needs to be done to show that he's submissive to Jesus. He's submissive to the church leaders. And that's when things take a left turn. He's in the temple trying to do what God has him to do. And it all goes south. Paul begins a trajectory here in chapter 21 that will carry him to Rome. And everything after this is going to be on this trajectory. And all of a sudden, Paul's enemies start to come out of the woodwork. It seems that maybe some have followed him from Ephesus and they're now here. There's people in Jerusalem that are against him and this is no longer loving opposition. This is hateful 
opposition. And this is clearly the enemy seeking to hijack what God is doing. Let's read about this hateful opposition. Look at verse 27 with me. So we're still in Acts 21, verse 27, and we're gonna read down through 36. Here's what God's word says, Acts 21, starting verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, they're purifying themselves, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the, tri the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Does this remind you of anything? Maybe echoes of Jesus' Passion Week? Here's what Paul said his deep desire was when he wrote to the church in Philippi. He said this in Philippians 3, that I may know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And this is exactly what's happening for Paul right here. Okay? His prayers are coming true. His prayer to God asking for this. He's sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. In fact, his suffering kind of mimics Jesus' timeline in numerous ways. One, Paul and the believers in Troas, if you remember, they broke bread in an upper room, and Luke tells us those details. Uh, then we see that Paul was constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, he said, except that he would face imprisonment and suffering. Agabus prophesies that Paul will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles, which is sort of what happens. He is, the Gentiles take him, and he is chained and bound. Paul is beaten. Jesus was beaten. Later in 22, uh, chapter 22, we'll see that the Romans are preparing to give Paul pretty much the same flogging that Jesus experienced. It's the scourging or the examination by that flagellum. Thankfully, Paul's citizenship, his Roman citizenship, uh, allows him to avoid that because that's a very devastating punishment. But what did they say at the very end of what we read? They say, away with him, which is exactly what they said about Jesus in Luke 23, John 19, along with, they said for Jesus, crucify him. They said, away with this man, and they said, crucify him. So, so there's this same ominous cloud kind of hovering over Paul that, that, that hung over Jesus. And I want to read these verses to you from Isaiah and Luke because we see not only is there the same cloud of, of like, this ominous cloud hanging over them, there's also the same resoluteness in Paul that was in Jesus Christ. Notice these words from Isaiah 50. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. These words in Isaiah are a foreshadowing of Jesus. In Luke 9, verse 51 and following, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Same cloud, same resoluteness. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He went to the cross knowing full well what was going to happen to him. Paul might not know exactly what's going to happen to him, but he knows it's not good, and he sets his face. He's resolute. How does he do this? How can Paul stay resolute in the midst of this opposition? How does a human being do this? What is it that holds him up and somehow galvanizes him in the midst of all this opposition? Loving opposition? Hateful opposition? I want to read on to find out. Acts 21, verse uh, 40, the very end of the chapter. Notice in verse 40, and then we'll read through 22, 21. So follow along through this uh, section here. Acts 21, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict, uh, strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, that's what they referred to Christians as, this way, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived, lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. That's happening again, isn't it? 
Verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this is the second time in the book of Acts that we have Paul telling his story. Paul seizes an opportunity to share the power of the gospel and give glory to Jesus. And the reason that Paul can be resolute in the midst of the opposition is because Paul was resolute in the gospel. The reason that Paul was resolute in the face of opposition was because Paul was resolute in the gospel. That's the second thing for us this morning, resolute in the gospel. Paul clings to the gospel by sharing his own story. He remembers what the gospel meant to him. This is a story which haters should be able to uh, identify with. All of his haters here, they're, you know, Paul used to stand right where they stand, in Jerusalem. He was hating the church. He was hating the way. Now they're in his place. They should hear his story and it should really connect. Paul had an incredible religious pedigree. I mean, he, he, better than maybe anyone else. He was raised in Jerusalem. He was a Jew of Jews, creme de la creme. He was even mentored by a very known uh, uh, leader of that day, a rabbi, that everyone respected. And he was just as much an enemy of the Christians as they were. But, and here's the moral of his gospel story. He's not that man anymore. Here's one of the most beautiful jewels of the gospel. Who we are is not who we were, right? Who we are in Christ as a new creation is not who we once were, new creation. The gospel had radically changed Paul. The good news that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, he says, and that meant that Paul needed to submit to him and follow him. The gospel stripped him of all of his prestige and all of his power and all of his influence, but it also stripped him of his sin. You see, it was that pride and the prestige and the, and the position and self-righteousness that blinded Paul so he couldn't see Jesus for who Jesus really was. So when God took off the blinders, he was able to see. He's able to see Jesus as Lord. What about you? Have you been radically changed by the good news? Have you submitted to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Lord? You may know some of those truths in your head. You may know that Jesus was a man, that he was the God-man, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. But have you submitted your heart and your life to him? Have you actually followed him? Or perhaps you're still furiously trying to save yourself. Trying to find identity in something of your own making, much like the people there that day that were opposing Paul. They're trying to save themselves. If that is you, today is the day to embrace the gospel. Today is the day to stop trying to save yourself and just see Jesus of Nazareth for who he is. Someone who can, who can change you, who can give you a new identity, who can make you a whole new man, a whole new woman. Paul's gospel story should have smitten the hearts of his enemies. It really should have because they should be able to identify with this story. But unfortunately, it didn't. So let's read on to verses 22 through 29. 
and see how they respond. And as you can imagine, not very well. Acts 22 verse 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's the scourging. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Or the tribune said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, Paul strikes a raw nerve here with the Jewish crowd. Uh, he connects the way that he's being treated with the treatment of Stephen, the first martyr that we have recorded in Scripture. Just as the religious leaders stoned Stephen, right, and killed him, they're treating Paul in the same way. Except here's the ironic thing, is that at the stoning of Stephen, Paul was there. His name was Saul, but he was there. He stood where his Jewish enemies stood right then, and he was seeking to kill Stephen. Now he's the one whose life is in jeopardy. So when Paul brings up Stephen, it's as if he's broadcasting, I was on the wrong side. <laughs> and now you're on the wrong side. <laughs> they don't like that. This connecting of the dots is more that they can handle and the riot and the cries of kill him or away with him, they just grow louder. And so Paul is here experiencing intense suffering for the gospel, just like Stephen, just like Christ. And this is another way of clinging to the gospel, seeing your suffering in its place, how Christ identifies with you, how Christ will minister to you as you suffer. There is a beauty in the pain of suffering. It can be hard to see at first, but Paul knew it well. The more we suffer for the gospel's sake, the more we can identify with Jesus. Let me clarify, this is different than the day-to-day -day struggle that just comes with living in a fallen world. For instance, this last week, my AC wasn't working for a day, so we suffered through that day and a half or whatever of no AC. Praise the Lord, they fixed it. Our car door panel is starting to fall off. I don't know what to do about that. Figure it out sometime. More serious, there's some really intense, difficult things going on back in Pennsylvania with my family that I've been processing through this week. But all of this is just living in a broken, fallen world where we're affected by the difficulty of living in this world. But here, what Paul is experiencing is a little bit different than that. We're talking about it specifically doing what is right and then experiencing pushback because you're doing what is right. Experiencing opposition. And sometimes the opposition comes from those we love. Sometimes it comes from our enemies. 
Always, it comes from Satan and his spiritual realm. When you suffer for doing what is right, you are in really good company. The Apostle Paul, Stephen, Jesus. We shouldn't desire to suffer, but we should accept it if he comes. I mean, Paul's not a glutton for punishment. He, he brings out his Roman citizenship card. He's like, I, I don't want to be scourged. I'm a Roman citizen. So it's not that Paul likes to suffer, but Paul's willing to suffer. He's willing to embrace whatever God has for him. We should accept that suffering knowing that it draws us close to the heart of the suffering Savior, Jesus. It allows us to, to know Jesus in a way that we wouldn't have known him and experience his love and his tenderness that he gives to those who suffer for, for his sake. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Doing right in the face of opposition, in the midst of suffering, is quite difficult. It's so much easier to just give in, to, to do what your flesh wants. How do we endure? How do we stay resolute when we're in those situations? We look to Jesus. Here's the really neat thing to consider. Uh, even though Paul's church planning is coming to a close, God isn't done with them. Paul will continue to be used by God in the book of Acts here, even as a Roman prisoner. Paul's salvation story is a remarkable one and he is quick to share it with those that are persecuting him. But his story isn't over. God is still doing things in him. Paul will continue to fulfill God's call to be a witness. And that word witness is a key word in our text. It's also a key word in the book of Acts. 13 times in the book of Acts, this word witness is used as the word that we get martyr from. It means to testify. It means to, you know, uh, say something about something. And one of those times in the very beginning of Acts when this word is used is a, is a verse you know very well, Acts 1.8, when the disciples are commissioned by Christ and Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then Paul is commissioned in chapter 26. Uh, in, tw in chapter 26 of Acts, we read about this, about his commissioning. And here's how, here's how it's, it's described in, verse, uh, in chapter 26 of verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, Jesus speaking to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me uh, and to those in which I will appear to you. So right after his conversion, Paul's told by Christ, you will be my witness. And this is what Paul is doing right here. He's being a witness. He's testifying. We are all witnesses. Whatever you go through is meant to be an opportunity for you to witness, for you to be a witness. Make no mistake, our life is testifying to something. It is saying something. Your life is saying something. It's pointing to whatever we believe in most. Whatever you're passionate about, whatever dominates your life, that's what you're witnessing to. In verse 20, Paul calls Stephen a witness, which is interesting. Stephen's life and death spoke loudly that Jesus was more important than anything, even his own life, right? Jesus was everything to Stephen, and that's why he's willing to lay his life down. That's what he's witnessing. That's why he's testifying. But also interesting, in chapter 7 of Acts, those who were stoning Stephen are called witnesses. Acts 7, verse 58, 
says, then they cast him out of the city, that's Stephen, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. What were they witnessing to? What were they testifying? They were saying loud and clear that they were passionate about preserving their identity, about preserving their system, and they would do anything to keep it. They would get rid of anything that opposed that system, that religious system. What does your life testify to? What is your life saying to others? Whatever age or stage you're at, you have a purpose, and God wants to use you. Your story is still being written. Here's some really good news today. If this message of resoluteness brings with it uh, feelings of failure because you've been anything but resolute, Jesus meets us in our failure. He's our rock. He's our righteousness. We abide in him. We walk by the power of the spirit, and the only resoluteness that we can hope to have is the resoluteness that he gives us through his spirit, through a new identity. Remember, the power comes from our identity, which is new in Jesus Christ. We are not who we once were. Maybe being resolute seems so far from your current situation. Remember what I said. The way in which we remain resolute in the midst of opposition is by being resolute in the gospel. And being resolute in the gospel doesn't happen overnight. It requires meditating on the gospel, allowing the truths of the gospel and who we are in Christ to seep down into the core of our identity of who we are, galvanizing our resolve. It's a daily endeavor. I got this very small tree in my backyard, and let me tell you, it's resolute, okay? Because I have tried to chainsaw that thing all the way down to the ground. I keep, I keep cutting it, and like two days later, I look out, it's like, Pfft. welcome to Florida. Apparently things grow like insane here, right? But I keep, you know, and we just laugh about it because we see it at our, our, our dining room table, and <clears throat> oh, look, the tree's growing again. Now I know I need to like have it like de-stumped or whatever it's called, right? I know that needs to happen. But I keep cutting that thing down. And this little tree, it's not that big, but it's big enough that it's got roots into the ground. It just keeps growing up. It's resolute. We'll take care of it eventually. But for now, it is remaining extremely resolute. You might feel like that tree, cut down. But if you're in Christ and you have a new identity, you have a resoluteness in you by the Spirit, in you, there is this resoluteness as you abide in Christ, as you, as you grow, God is, is infusing you with what you need, the righteousness that you need, the resoluteness that you need. Take heart, believer. Your story is still being written, and Christ has more work to do in your heart. By his spirit, God will grow you, and he will make you resolute. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the example of Paul and really how it points to Jesus. Oh God, we need resoluteness because uh, we're, we're frail. We feel weak so many times. And Lord, maybe there's somebody in here right now who's just saying, man, I don't think I can be resolute. I have opposition and I'm ready to give up. And Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart and minister to them by your spirit and remind them of the identity that they have in Jesus Christ. That, that you will infuse them with the resoluteness that they need 
If they will stay resolute in the gospel, they will stay resolute in the face of opposition. And I pray for them, God. I pray for them right now. Bring people around them to love on them, to remind them of who they are. Help them not to give up. Lord, for the believers who are staying resolute, but they're, they're white-knuckling it, and they're having a difficult time, and there's opposition from loved ones, maybe, or from enemies, may this be a grace to them today. May your word show them Paul in the face of opposition, Jesus in the face of opposition, Stephen in the face of opposition, and may they realize that the gospel is what gives them the power that they need to hold on. And God, when we fail, which we do, and we're not resolute, minister to us by your spirit. Remind us that Jesus never gave up, that Jesus set his face like flint, and he finished the course, and because of his righteousness, we're accepted by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.